Our sermon text today comes from the entire chapter of Isaiah 45. Don't lock your knees. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for the price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord. The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry, out their wooden, uh, carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. 
Beside myself, I have, by myself, I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now it's green and you can hear me. There you go. All right, so here's what I want you to do at the beginning. I want you to picture an iceberg, okay? Picture an iceberg, like a big one, like a massive iceberg with ice mountains rising from the sea in all directions, and then ice roots, I don't know if that's actually a thing, but I'm going to make it a thing, ice roots stretching into the unseen depths of the ocean. You got that picture in your head? Big iceberg, ice mountains up, ice roots down. I want you to have that image in your head throughout the sermon. Biblical revelation is like that iceberg. The Bible is like that iceberg. What we have in the scriptures, what we have here, is the part of the iceberg that juts out of the water. Like that's the words on the page. But the, the fullness of God's meaning plunges into the depths. Like you can go down deep, 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 deep as you try to bring things together. So when we're attempting to um, know God through his word, we have to go deep and we have to go wide, deep and wide. We, we read biblical sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books, and then we go deep and we meditate on, on the, the words and the, and the meaning and draw the implications as we try to trace the depth of the iceberg down. And then we go wide and we connect biblical sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books to other Biblical sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books showing the connections between one part of scripture over here and another part over there as we try to chart the breadth of the iceberg. Got that? So deep and wide. Remember that song from when you were a kid. And so um, at Bethlehem, and I trust here at Redemption City, uh, we're whole Bible people, okay? Like we want the whole counsel of God, not just the partial counsel of God. And so we ask questions like, Anytime we're in the Bible, we're asking questions like, what must be the case in order for everything in the Bible to be true? Like, what other things must be true in order for that sentence to be true? Does that question make sense? We're, at, we're trying to, to figure out not just that isolated truth, but how it all hangs together. That, that question, what must be the case in order for everything in the Bible to be true? That's a systematic theology question. Like it goes deep into reality to make sense of what God reveals. And then another question we ask is, how does God progressively reveal himself over time? And that's a biblical theology question, okay? It goes wide into the Bible and traces themes from Genesis to Revelation. And, and in doing that, asking those two types of questions, we're trying to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, both in breadth and in depth. And, and when we do this, um, our, our basic conviction, this is one of the things that we, we teach at Bethlehem, we try to instill in our people, is uh, we want to learn to read the Bible from biblical authors. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Like, in other words, we want to learn to read the Torah, first five books, by seeing how the prophets read the Torah. Like, what did, how did Isaiah read Deuteronomy? Or we learn to read the Old Testament 
by seeing how did Jesus and the apostles read the Old Testament. Like we're looking for quotations and we're listening for echoes so that our minds begin to run in biblical ruts. You know, this is part of the goal of repeated Bible reading, okay, is you train your mind to run in biblical ruts so that you're in one passage and you go, wait, that sounds familiar. Something, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that? And you go, oh, I jumped from that passage to that passage, and now I make a connection. And what did I just do? That was Ice Mountain, Ice Mountain, and I just ran underneath into the ice roots and saw what the biblical author saw. So we're, we're trying to, um, one way to put it is, we don't merely want to accept sort of Paul's conclusions about God. We want to see how Paul got there. Like, what did he see in the Bible? We want to imitate his method. And that brings us here to Isaiah 45. So this is Isaiah's oracle concerning Cyrus, king of Persia, written 200 years before Cyrus was alive. It's a remarkable thing. There's lots of um, unbelieving biblical scholars who say you can't do that. You can't have a prophecy about a king 200 years before the king. Um. Despite being a pagan ruler, Cyrus is described here as the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. And though Cyrus doesn't know Yahweh himself, Yahweh knows Cyrus. And he names Cyrus, and he calls Cyrus, and he equips Cyrus to fulfill God's purposes. He says things like, God will go before Cyrus and subdue nations and open locked gates for him. That's verses 1 to 3. And he does that so that through Cyrus, God will restore the fortunes of Israel following their exile to Babylon. That's verses 4 and 5. And Yahweh does this so that all people will know, here's what he says, verse 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And that theme right there, the, the uniqueness of the Lord becomes the dominant theme of this entire chapter. I, the reason we, I, we read the whole thing is I just wanted you to hear over and over again that drumbeat. If you didn't get anything else, you heard repetition, 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 where God asserts his unique divine prerogatives. So again and again, the Lord through his prophet shouts, I alone am God. So here, I want you to hear it again, trumpet blast of God's uniqueness in this, um, I think you could call this the most monotheistic chapter in the Bible. Does that make sense? Like you could say, like if you're going to pick one place to go, how many gods are there? And you're going to go to one, one chapter? That's right. This guy's got it. He's like, there's one. I know. I, obviously he was listening, right? There's one God. How do, how do you know? Where, where do you get that drumbeat again and again? Here you go. Seven times in this one chapter. Verse five. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse six. There is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 14. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. No God besides him. Verse 18. I am the Lord. There is no other. Verse 21. Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. So I am the Lord, there's none besides me. I have no rival, no equal. I am God, there is no other. That declaration is an invitation to us to go deep, and to explore the depths of the iceberg. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it by asking these two questions. So according to this passage, here's question one. 
what makes the Lord unique? Like, what is the meaning of his uniqueness, his there is none like me? And then second, what, what must be true in order for that to be true? Whatever we say makes him unique. What else do we need to do to, un, what are the implications? That's, that's how we talk. What are the implications of his uniqueness? We've got a few things here. So number one, what makes him unique? He alone is the creator God. That's the first point. First, he alone is the creator God. He forms light. He creates darkness, verse seven. He sends showers to the earth and causes plants to grow, verse eight. He is the potter who forms the clay and the father who makes all mankind, verse nine. Isaiah here actually goes wide. This is one of those places where you can hear an echo. I wonder if you can hear it right here in this passage. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host, verse 12, and then down in verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who firmed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. What verse is that echoing? What passage in the Bible? Genesis chapter one, right? Isaiah is reaching back to Genesis one and echoing it here in order to proclaim the Lord's uniqueness. He alone, alone is the almighty maker of heaven and the earth, the one who formed and filled the cosmos. So let's press that a little bit deeper. What, what must be true? So now we're asking, so what makes him unique? He alone is creator. Well, what, what does that mean? Let's press the implications of that. And so I just want you to think for a minute about what goes into making a pot. That's what he says, right? He's the potter. He made pots. What goes into making a pot? Well, when you've got a finished pot, um, there are a number of other things sort of behind it. So to make a pot, here's what you need. You need material. You need uh, the potter who molds it into a particular shape or form for a particular purpose. Okay, get that? So, and you could have different materials and you could have different shapes and you could have different purposes. So like the potter could shape clay into a tall skinny shape in order to hold flowers. Got that? Or the potter could shape ceramic into a wider shape, put it in a bathroom and use it for something else. But to make a pot, here's what you need in order to make a pot. You need stuff, you need a potter, you need a shape and you need a purpose. Those four things. And here's the point. It, it, when it comes to pots, there are things more ultimate than the pot that make the pot the pot. There are things more ultimate than the pot that make the pot the pot. So if you say, hey, what's a pot? You could say, well, a pot is a molded object made out of clay by a potter for a purpose. That's how you would answer that question. You could break the pot down into things more fundamental than the pot. And the pot then is the combination of those things, okay? Now, here's the, here's the implication. If the Lord is the potter, he's not a pot. If he's the maker, he's not the made. If he's the creator, he's not a creature. If, if we're grouping things into categories, pots go on one side of the line, potter goes on the other which means that unlike pots, nothing and no one makes him who he is. You can't get behind him to something more fundamental than him that makes him him. You can't break him down into more fundamental parts. No one formed him. No one shaped him. This is the way the Bible talks, right? He just is. 
He just is. Like if you ask him, like you say, what's a pot? You can break it down into the parts. God, who are you? What's his answer? I am. Yeah, yeah, okay. But who are you? And he goes, I heard the question. I am who I am. You can't get behind that, that I am to something more fundamental than the I am. He's the bottom. That's his name, Yahweh, the one who simply is. And according to Isaiah, there's only one like that. He alone. That's number one. How is God unique? He's the creator of all things. Second, not only is he the maker, he is the sovereign sustainer and governor of the world. Do you see that here? The verse th- verses one to three, the Lord goes before Cyrus and prepares the way. He stirs Cyrus up in righteousness. He makes his way level. He ensures that Cyrus builds his city and sets the exiles of Israel free. All of those events described in this chapter are known and declared by God before they happen. He is not a Monday morning quarterback commenting on what somebody else did yesterday. He's calling it before it happens. That's what the text says, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, that's Cyrus, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth, I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. Declare, verses 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? This theme actually continues in the next chapter. If you want to just skip ahead, we didn't read this part, but look at chapter 46, verses 8 to 11. Listen to it. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressor. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. So he didn't stop talking that way at the end of verse chapter 45. I am God and there is none like me. What makes him unique? Listen declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. So what makes him unique? Why is, he, why is there none like him? Because he is sustaining the world and governing all of history. That's what it means for him to be unique. Okay, so that's the the claim. Now, let's go deep. What what must be, what are the implications? What must be true for that to be true? Here's three things that must be true. If he's the sovereign, sustainer, and governor of history, number one, he's all-knowing. Past, present, future, he declares the end from the beginning. Number two, he's all wise. He, he takes counsel. It's his counsel that shall stand. He's not willy-nilly. He's not arbitrary. He has purposes and plans. And number three, he's all powerful. None of his purposes fall to the ground. Not one of them can be frustrated. All of them come to pass. And so notice that. He doesn't just govern those who are his people, those who know him and trust him. He governs those who don't know him at all. Like the people who are in high-handed rebellion, he's like, yeah, that's my pot too. I've just got a different purpose for that one. So you and I, here's again, why is he unique? You and I and every creature have limits 
to our knowledge, to our power, to our sovereignty. God has none. He's infinite in power, in knowledge, in majesty. You and I, think about this, you and I depend on lots of things to accomplish our purposes. Like, there are, like other things have to be in place in order for me to get stuff done around my house. You and I can be frustrated. You can have plans and then something happens and those plans don't happen. God depends on nothing. God depends on no one to accomplish his purposes. Like he does use means, he uses things like Cyrus, but he does not depend upon means. He can't be frustrated. And so this is why we say, we confess, right? God is omniscient, omnipotent, infinite, independent, and free. And because of that, he is absolutely unique. There is none like him. So that's number two. Now, number, number three, finally, not only is he the almighty maker, and not only is he the sovereign sustainer and governor, according to Isaiah 45, he alone is the living, righteous God and a savior. He's distinct from all the gods of the nations because, according to verse 20, the pagans carry their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Follow that? He's unique because he's an actual savior. Those gods cannot save. Isaiah 46 again elaborates on this. So skip ahead down to 46 verses 1 and 2. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. These are pagan gods. These are names of pagan gods. Their idols are on beasts and livestock these things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. To gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. You heard all of them right there? I've made them, that's creator. I will bear and carry them, that's sustaining and governing, and I will save them. And do you hear the contrast that he makes? Donkeys carry the idols of the nations. God carries his people. Idols can't even save themselves. They get hauled off to captivity just like the people do. But the Lord saves his people. Look at verse five, continue. To whom will you then liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Okay, find somebody else like this, he says to his people. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God, and then they fall down and worship it. Like Isaiah thinks this is funny. He thinks it's comical. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. This is the fundamental difference between the Lord and the gods of the nations. He is the living God, not a statue, not dead, alive. Like when, like when Aslan is on the move, it's not because someone put him on their shoulders. 
He comes and goes as he pleases. This is, in fact, one of the main contrasts throughout the Old Testament. When, when God says, um, what are idols like? They can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak. God's not like that. In fact, you have eyes, you have ears, and you have a mouth because God is a seeing God, a hearing God, and a speaking God. And he is so great and so unique that he speaks without a mouth because he doesn't have a body. He hears without ears because he doesn't have a body. He sees without eyes because he doesn't have a body. There is none like him, no equal, no rival, a class by himself. Okay, so that, that's true. He's a savior. That makes him unique. What else must be true for that to be true? Let's go deeper. Well, I wonder what you make of verse 24, chapter 45, verse 24. Look at it carefully. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. And here's where you would want to pause and ask yourself a question. What's the word only doing there? Because if you read your Bible, if you read your Bible, you know that throughout the Bible, lots of human beings have righteousness and strength. But this is pretty common. Does David's righteous? Some, you know, Moses, right? Saul has power. Solomon has strength. So the question is, what's the word only doing here? The word only means that righteousness in the Lord is in the Lord in a unique way. Like you and I are said to have righteousness when we meet a standard of righteousness, right? So when I say you're righteous, what I mean is you've met the standard. The Lord is the standard. So think about it this way. The Lord is not merely righteous. He is righteousness. Think about this adjective and a noun. Okay, think about the difference between adjective and a noun. He's not merely good. He is goodness itself. He is the good that makes all the other goods good. He's not merely strong, adjective. He is strength itself. He is the strong that makes all things strong. He's not merely wise. He's wisdom itself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's not merely righteous, good, strong, and wise. He is, capital T, capital letters all the way through here, he is the righteous, the good, the strong, and the wise. In other words, God's attributes aren't just qualities he happens to have. Like qualities that just, oh, yes, you, you, there's qualities that you just happen to have, right? At one point, I had hair, and now I don't, okay? Hair was just sort of a property I happened to have for a certain period of my life, far shorter than we all thought, okay? God's qualities aren't like that. They're essential to him. They are our ways of describing his own being and his essence and his very nature, his, his godness. Because remember, he just is who he is. And so, well, here's, here's one way to think about this. Um, God is light, like pure, simple, white light. Okay? And then these attributes that we talk about, righteousness, wisdom, strength, goodness, they're what happens when that white light shines through a prism, the prism of creation. 
The white light, you know what happens, right? When you, when you take white light, you run it through a prism, what happens? It refracts into the, all the colors of the rainbow. And now we can see all of the colors. So that clay pots can have some idea what that potter is like. And so like Moses, remember the story of Moses when, um, in uh, Exodus 34, where he says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see me face to face. Like if the white light shines on you, it's just going to burn you up. And so instead, I'm going to hide you in a cleft of the rock and you can see me from the back. You can see me from the back. That's how we know God. We know him, so to speak, from the back. We know him in ways that are accommodated to our abilities. Like he speaks human to humans because he condescends that we might know him. And then we strain and we labor to try to find words to describe this God who is only God, there is no other. So again and again in this chapter, the Lord through his prophet shouts, he alone is God. I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord, there's none besides me. Almighty creator, sovereign sustainer, living savior. And so that's why there's no surprise. And when you come to the end of this passage, look back in verse 23, this greatest of monotheistic passages in the Bible, here's what God says. By myself, I have sworn. Even that statement right there, by the way, like when we swear, you swear by something greater than yourself, right? Like I put my hand on the Bible or I swear by my mother's grave. Or whenever we do stuff like that, we're saying, here's something more valuable than just my word. And when God says, hey, I'm gonna swear, this is what the book of Hebrews tells us. He's got nothing greater by which to swear. Like there's no other thing that he could find that says, hey, my word's not enough. I need to boost it with something greater than me. He just says, I guess I'm gonna swear by me. So by myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. In other words, this word, when it goes out, isn't bouncing back empty. This word is going out and is going to be effective. What's the word? To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. So as the only true and living God, no one greater by whom he can swear, his sure and certain word establishes everybody's going to bow to me and everyone is going to confess that Yahweh alone is Lord. Now, here's the thing. That's deep. We just went deep into Isaiah 45. Now, just come with me for a second. Let's go wide. I bet some of you already went there because I'm guessing that this is the sort of place where you've read your Bible a time or two and you heard Isaiah 45, 23, and you said, that kind of sounds familiar. Anybody have that? Anybody feel like, I've, that sounds a little bit familiar. Okay, we need to learn to read Isaiah with the apostles. And when we do, here's the shock. Philippians chapter two. Just listen to Philippians chapter two. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we go. Like Isaiah, Paul is celebrating the anointed of the Lord, the Messiah, Christ Jesus himself. Now here's the difference. Cyrus didn't know the Lord. Jesus does. Cyrus was fulfilling his purposes sort of accidentally. Jesus was doing so 
obediently, deliberately. His humility and obedience becomes the model for our own. Have this mind that was in Christ. Jesus humbled himself. His obedience went all the way down, all the way to death, even an ignoble death on a cross. And then here's the turn. Listen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that this fundamental Christian confession, right? This is the baseline What does it mean to be a Christian? Jesus is Lord. Does not merely mean that Jesus is a human ruler like King Herod or Caesar or Cyrus. Paul knows that when he says that, he is echoing the words of Isaiah in the greatest monotheistic chapter in the Bible. Like when I was in college... Sometimes the, uh, the Mormons would come to the door and like, you know, on their missions or whatever, and they would want to talk with the Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes. And then, so um, being in college, sometimes I didn't have anything else to do. So I just, you know, I, I was just playing video games. You guys showed up. Let's go. Yeah, come on in. Let's have a talk. And so they'd come in and sit down. And here's the deal about those guys. They typically had, they were ready for certain, I knew the differences. I know you guys don't believe in the Trinity. You don't believe that there's only one God. You believe that we all can become gods and some kind of weird thing. So I knew that and I knew, okay, so let's, let's do some of the, the passages. And so I'd go to, you know, you could go to um, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now here's the deal. All of them had this little bitty booklet that they carried with them. And when I would say that, they would flip that book. It was like their little like answer. They knew what Christians would say. And so they would run, they would say, oh, actually, the translation isn't quite right. Or, you know, they'd start fiddling with stuff like that. So I figured that out. So what I started doing is I said, okay, let's go to Isaiah chapter 45 for a minute. Let's just, let's just go hang out in Isaiah 45. And I'd start reading through it. And, and there's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. And they would go, yep, that's what we're saying. There's only one God. That's the Father. There's only one God. There's only one God. He's supreme. Jesus isn't that, you know, that, that's what they would do, right? Jesus was just a creature. Jesus was just his son, but not as great or whatever. And so I'm going, yep, so one God, one God. We're all on the same page. This is, there's only one. Okay, let's just turn the page. And we'd flip over to Philippians 2. And I'd read that and I'd say, so whose name? Who's the Lord? And that, that one wasn't in their little book. So that usually ended the conversation. And then we said, you know, good to see you. You They'd go on their way. But Paul knows what he's doing here. He knows that that what he's done, that chapter in Isaiah that rang with, there is no other, is now shockingly, surprisingly, incredibly redeployed, rearranged, and applied to declare that Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is not just a great prophet or an anointed king. He is Lord, the Lord, Yahweh himself, full of compassion and mercy, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is Yahweh himself come in the flesh to rescue and redeem, to suffer and to save. 
And this helps us here at Advent to see how Jesus is both like and unlike Cyrus. Remember Cyrus, right? He's the Lord's anointed. Well, so is Jesus. The nations declared to Cyrus, surely God is in you. That's what they said about Cyrus. Surely God is in you. God's with you. Jesus, right? What's his name? Emmanuel, God with us. The wealth of Egypt and Cush, we're told, was given to Cyrus. Jesus gets Egypt and Cush themselves. All of the nations are his inheritance, the ends of the earth, his possession. Okay, so with God's help, you remember in the the passage, Cyrus broke through the gates of fortified cities. He tore down the doors of bronze. What about Jesus? He ripped the doors off the city of death. He burst the bonds of sin's prison. Cyrus, yes, was the Lord's Messiah, but Jesus, the Messiah, is the Lord himself. And because we've gone deep in Isaiah, because we went deep, and because we've explored the meaning and implications of there is no other, there is none like me, then we understand what an unbelievable claim is being made here. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess he is the almighty maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign sustainer and governor of history, and the living and righteous savior. It is confessed Jesus is the potter, not just a pot. He's the infinite, independent, unchanging, absolute, omniscient, omnipotent, and supreme God. He is goodness himself, righteousness himself, strength himself, wisdom himself. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess he doesn't simply meet the standard of a perfect man. He is the standard as the living God. Paul knows what he's doing and he knows he's not the first to do it. Shepherds, shepherds heard it first. You remember, right? Here we are coming up to Christmas. Declared by angel tongues on bended knees on the night of Christmas. The good news of great joy for all people shockingly brought together what Isaiah said into one simple sentence. Listen, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Not merely the Lord's Christ, that's like David or Cyrus. This Christ is the Lord himself now laying aside his divine privileges, emptying himself, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so now, when the ends of the earth turn to be saved, they don't merely turn to the living God. They turn to the God-man from Nazareth, the child from Bethlehem. Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. Jesus is Lord, and there is none like him. Let's pray. Father, it is a remarkable thing. It is a remarkable thing that as we celebrate Christmas, we see your great condescension. You descended to be with us. You came down and humbled yourself that we might be raised to you. You became man that we might in some measure be partakers of the divine nature. We might be united to you and restored to you. And so, Lord, I pray that this Christmas you would give us wonder and grace um, to know and love and enjoy Jesus as the almighty maker, sovereign sustainer, and living Savior. 
Help us to see him clearly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.